if you read to the very end of John's gospel, you will find an interesting disclaimer from the author. He writes, there are also many other things that Jesus did. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I love the fact that John just wants to acknowledge the fact that there is no way to fully document everything that Jesus did. And because of that, when we read through the Gospels, something worth asking is, why did the author include this? Out of all the things that Jesus did, what was so significant about this event or this conversation or this teaching that it was included in this gospel account? I found myself wondering just that about our gospel passage today from Luke 24. Luke is the only gospel writer who includes this account of two disciples meeting Jesus on their 11-kilometer walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. The first thing that makes this post-resurrection appearance different from most is that there are no well-known disciples there. No Peter, no Mary Magdalene, none of the 12. Instead, we get two no-name disciples. Well, one of them is eventually named, Cleopas, but he's never mentioned again by Luke either in his gospel or in the Acts of the Apostles. And so it appears that the identity of the disciples is clearly not the point. When we meet these two disciples in the 24th chapter of Luke's gospel, they're engaged in conversation about the events of the past few days. And we can assume that includes Jesus's arrest, his being sentenced to death, his crucifixion, and his burial. Putting ourselves in their shoes, we can imagine that their heads are spinning as they try to process all that has happened. When someone dies suddenly or unexpectedly, we often face disbelief as our brain has not yet adjusted to the reality that someone we have always expected to be around is now gone permanently from our lives. For these followers of Jesus who had come to orient their lives around him as their teacher and their guide and expected him to become their king, the death of Jesus went beyond grief. It was like an existential crisis. The one that they had placed their hope in had suffered a painful, humiliating death, and now he was gone. And as they were trying to wrap their minds around that, they were hearing reports of an empty tomb and a vision of angels saying that Jesus was alive. It was a lot to process. And Luke's account suggests that they were feeling sad and confused when a man approached them. It was Jesus, but they didn't know it. They were kept from recognizing him. 
He asked them what they were talking about, and they were surprised he didn't seem to know about everything that had taken place. After all, Pontius Pilate had brought Jesus before the crowds in Jerusalem, where the crowds had called for his death. Jesus had walked through the crowded streets of Jerusalem bearing his cross on the way to the skull, Golgotha, outside the city where he was crucified. Even those who had not personally witnessed this probably heard other people talking about it. But since this stranger appeared to be in the dark, they told him. They told him about Jesus of Nazareth, calling him a prophet, mighty in deed and word, and they said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. They continued, yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Then they went on to tell him about what had happened early that morning when the women went to the tomb. They said, when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us they had indeed seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. Some of them who were, who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. At this point, Jesus had heard enough. They had shared the facts with him as they understood them, but clearly they did not yet believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead. It was interesting that they mentioned it was the third day since Jesus' death had taken place, because when Jesus had told his disciples about what was going to happen to him, he would often say something like, the Son of Man must undergo great suffering, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. It was always on the third day. When the women had gone to the tomb and encountered those two men in dazzling clothes, which they understood to be angels, those men had said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And then Luke writes, then they remembered his words. So did these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, did they remember Jesus' words about what would happen on the third day? Perhaps, but they were still unsure. And so Jesus said to them, oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Now that was a rhetorical question, and then he answered it with what had to be one of the best Bible studies of all time. Luke writes, then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. 
Oh, to have been able to listen in on that Bible study. Can you imagine the Bible teacher of all Bible teachers? Now, I know the gospel writers could not include everything that Jesus said and did, but this is one of those times I do wish they'd given us a little bit more detail. Luke tells us nothing more about what Jesus taught these two disciples. However, there are, are other places in Luke's gospel where Jesus gives specific examples of how he fulfills the scriptures. And we might guess that he used some of those same examples in his on-the-road Bible study. Jesus, as we know, frequently calls himself the Son of Man, a title referencing a vision from the prophet Daniel. So it's quite possible that he shared with them from Daniel chapter 7. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus, after all, knows that he is the one whom Daniel prophesied about, the one who was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that would last forever. But before entering into glory, as Jesus said, it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer. We have to remember that the purpose of Jesus' death was not clear at all to his disciples until after his resurrection. It was only in the light of his resurrection that they could make sense of it. The fact that Jesus did not die a needless death, but an absolutely necessary one in order to save us from our slavery to sin and the eternal death and destruction that awaits us. Now, Jesus had dropped a clue about this to his disciples on Thursday evening when he instituted the Lord's Supper. And then after their meal together, he said to them, for I tell you, that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Perhaps that is familiar to you. He was numbered with the transgressors. It's from Isaiah 53, a passage often termed the suffering servant. And we read it every year on Palm Sunday. It spells out why the Messiah had to die. So I want you to listen again to what will probably be a familiar passage for you. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Later on, it continues. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. After Jesus had quoted from Isaiah 53 to his disciples, saying he was numbered with the transgressors, Jesus added, for what was written about me has its fulfillment. And so if Jesus was looking to show these two disciples that the Messiah must suffer and be killed, it is hard to imagine that he did not draw upon Isaiah 53. And yet, even as Jesus opened the scriptures to them, they were still kept from recognizing him. Once they reached Emmaus, they insisted that Jesus stay with them. And then they had a meal together. At the meal, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. It was something he had done at so many meals before with his disciples. At the Passover, when he fed the 5,000, when he instituted the Lord's Supper. And at last, at last their eyes were opened. They recognized him, and then he vanished from their sight. He had showed them what their hearts had been crying for, his very presence, the confirmation that he was no longer dead, but alive. And this, of course, changed everything. Once they recognized Jesus, the Bible study made so much more sense to them. Jesus' death was not the end of the story, but only the beginning. It was not a defeat, but a victory. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? Yes, of course their hearts were burning. The author of scripture, the author of their salvation, had been explaining it to them. And now they knew for sure Jesus was alive. So they could not wait until the next day to let the others know. They traveled that very night back the 11 kilometers to Jerusalem, even though it meant traveling at night. And once they safely arrived, they found the 11 disciples and their companions who greeted them saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. And then Cleopas and his companion shared their story 
with the disciples. Now, of all the things Luke could have included in his gospel, why did he include these two disciples' encounter with Jesus on the road to Emmaus? Well, friends, I'm not going to pretend to have the definitive answer. I will say, however, that this story paints a picture of what that first Easter Sunday was like for some of Jesus' disciples and how the risen Lord made himself available to them, supplying them with what they needed to believe and to understand both through his word and at the table with him. Is it any wonder that 2,000 years later, we continue to gather and read and learn from God's word and meet our Lord at the table? Whether we are like Mary Magdalene or Peter or Cleopas or what's her name there, Jesus knows our name, and he meets us where we are, full of faith or with the faith of a mustard seed, happy and confident or sad and confused. By his Holy Spirit, Jesus is with us here today. He reveals his saving love to us in his life, death, and resurrection. He invites us to meet him in his holy word and at his holy table in the blessing and the breaking of bread. So friends, let us believe, let us know and proclaim, Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. May we receive our risen Christ today in our hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. Amen.